You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. With some of the kids that are like perfectionists, they think that it's supposed to come the first time. I said, well, when you were in kindergarten, you didn't know calculus. You have to take steps to get to that level. And you're going to make mistakes and you have to challenge yourself in a lesson and you have to dare be wrong sometimes. You know, if we're doing um, a line and I want you to do between like five and six strides, you know, go forward for five, wait for six, you might get it wrong. I mean, that's totally fine. That's part of the learning process. And that's also part of trying to find the right horse that can deal with that. Um, But I'll, I'll put them in a lesson with other people or they'll see me on a green horse or something. And I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. You watch Ludger Bierbaum. He makes mistakes. Laura Kraut, she'll miss. You know, mm-hmm. we all, no one is perfect. Um, and you have to dare push yourself. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Julia Murphy, and this week's episode is with top trainer and international show jumper, Kama Gotik. Kama has competed at some of the most prestigious venues in the world, up to the CSI five-star level, and has worked for the biggest and most respected equestrians in the world, including Katie monahan Prudant and Laura Kraut. It all began when Kama was a child, and her family went on vacation to a dude ranch in Colorado. From then on out, Kama made her life horses and worked hard for every opportunity that came her way. In high school, she rode under Monaghan Prudent and then continued to ride in college on an IHSA team. After college, Kama moved to Europe to continue her riding education and ultimately stayed for 13 years teaching and showing. While in Europe, she obtained a German trainer certification from the Westphalen Rider and Driving School in Munster, Germany. In 2007, she started her own international equine sales business, Camagotic LLC, where she helped international customers find European horses. And in 2012, Cama returned to the States and reestablished her business in Northern Virginia, now located at Ohana Equestrian Preserve. Cama runs a full-service equitation, hunter, and jumper show stable that caters to riders who want to improve their competitive performance both nationally and internationally. Over the years, Kama has produced countless horses and riders from the local circuit all the way to the FEI level. Before we dive into the podcast with Kama, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina, and share their message. Your horse has unique feed needs, and Purina has you covered. From breeding and growing to senior horses, From performance horses to easy keepers and everything in between, Purina has an extensive portfolio of research-backed options for your horse. There's no shortcut for quality nutrition. Cheaper isn't cheaper if it doesn't work. Put their research to the test. Find optimal nutrition at any level at your local Purina retailer or visit PurinaMills.com to learn more. Now, enjoy the episode with Kama. Diving in here with the first question, I just wanted to touch on your training philosophy because you have turned out not only some incredible horses, but also talent, um, riding talent over the years. So I would love to know what your training philosophy is. Well, the first thing um, when people come to me, I always ask them if they're riding because they want to have fun and just enjoy the horse or they want to be competitive and move up the levels. Are they happy with the status quo where they are. They want to push themselves to see how far they can go in the sport. I think that's really important to know what someone's goals are. And um, I actually had one client two years ago or so come to me and I said, well, what are your like short-term and long-term goals? And she said, you're the first person that ever asked me that. I said, what? How can we get somewhere Mm -hmm. if we don't even know where you want to go? You know, if you're happy jumping in the adult jumpers or in the children's jumpers, and you don't have the desire to move up the levels, then, you know, I need to know that. Um, Or if you say, I want to be 
you know, riding in young riders or go to pre-distates or something, then we need to figure out and work backwards how we can get you to your goals and what horse right. you might come in with. And then um, it's it's just like learning how to drive a car, really. You're not going to give someone a top sports car when they're 16. They're going to first learn on maybe like a, a Volkswagen or something and or maybe an older car because you're going to make mistakes. And um, those horses uh, are so, so valuable. Those first junior jumper type horses that are a little bit more forgiving with uh, inexperienced riders. And then as the mm-hmm. rider develops, then find a more sophisticated horse. Sometimes I just say they're, they're finishers. You know, you want to get to the, to the finish line. You might have a rail or two, but you're at least getting in there and seeing what it feels like to be on a, um, a, a, a scopey horse and then right. get one that's maybe a little bit more sensitive. So I think it's rare to find a horse that's going to take someone from the entry level all the way to the, to the top. I mean, it does of course happen. You see some, some riders do that, but that's rare. So I think the, the first thing is really sitting down with the riders and their families too, seeing the commitment level and then, um, mm-hmm. working within that and then, um, finding the right match for the, for the riders. I'm really fortunate that I can sit on the horses so I can, uh, you know, sit on maybe the horse they come with and see what that horse feels like, and then try to maybe get them the 2.0 of that horse and, and right. move upwards from there. Um, and when you, oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, so when you are teaching students, um, and you've produced so many that have come up the junior ranks and are now, you know, competing at the professional level and amateur levels and are just so successful. So when you are teaching, um, how would you describe your teaching style? I never get angry if someone makes a mistake. I see some trainers in the warm up and they, oh, why, you know, why did you do this? Well, you know, everyone's trying to do the best job that they can. No one is going out there and trying to have a rail or go off course. Everyone goes in and tries their hardest. Uh, so I would say that I try to break it down. I was not a very good um, student in school and um, I <laughs> had to go to tutors and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was in advanced classes, but sometimes my mom would have to sit down and try to teach me a different way. So I try to make visual cues for them. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I also sometimes let them ride some of my more advanced horses, or I'm also teaching on the horse. So uh, a large part of our riding is flat work and um, and a lot of time working on flat work. And then I'll basically chase them around the ring on a horse. So I'll be probably four horse lengths behind them. And then if they're not doing the shoulder incorrectly, I literally just pass them on the short side. And I say, okay, this is what I want. Let's break it down to a walk and look mm-hmm. at how I'm doing it. And I've also noticed sometimes with some of the kids that are like perfectionists, they think that it's supposed to come the first time. I said, well, when you were in kindergarten, you didn't know calculus. You have to take steps to get to that level. And you're going to make mistakes and you have to challenge yourself in a lesson and you have to dare be wrong sometimes. You know, if we're doing um, a line and I want you to do between like five and six strides, you know, go forward for five, wait for six, you might get it wrong. I mean, that's totally fine. That's part of the learning process. And that's also part of trying to find the right horse that can deal with that. Um, But I'll, I'll put them in a lesson with other people or they'll see me on a green horse or something and I make mistakes we all make mistakes you watch Ludger Bierbaum he makes mistakes Laura Kraut she'll miss you know mm-hmm. we all, no one is perfect um and you have to dare push yourself so I never get upset if someone makes a mistake no one's trying to go out there and and and, and uh, get eliminated yeah. in the class certainly not so yeah. that's uh just breaking it down I mean one of the girls this weekend I'm so proud she came to me uh, with a horse she had already bought um, uh, off the internet actually during COVID and it's been a challenging horse and 
she was double clear and the horse and her, I mean, they're coming together and it's taken some time and mm-hmm. uh, she was fourth in the classic. She didn't win, but for me, it was a huge win, a huge win that yeah. she was double clear with that horse. Cause we've gone through a lot with, with him. So those, those things. And what do you think when you are training, um, do you ever find that there is one thing that a lot of students need to work on and that they need to get better at? Yeah, they need to read more, do homework, mm, read about very the sport. And uh, I actually met a dressage woman last week, um, and and I asked her for some help, the upper level dressage trainer. And she said, "Well, before I'll even teach you, I want you to take like five to eight hours it takes to read through some of my philosophy." Said, "Oh, that's a good idea." Like, you know, so she, yeah. uh, so I would know her terms. And it's like, if you come to me and you don't know the difference between a half turn or a half turn in reverse, it takes me 15 minutes to explain it. And that's something you could read in a book as well and know those things before you can just, that's a figure that's, yeah. just a, you know, that, 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 that could be read. Um, so just learning outside of the arena too you can only encourage someone to do their own self-study as you know, that, that that's, that's all on the rider too. You can only push them so much you try and yeah. try to be influential, but that's kind of on your own and you can take it as far as you want. Yeah. Just continuing that education outside the ring um, right. and bringing it, bringing it back, you know, in your, in your training, in your lessons with them and apply, applying it and learning it. I see what you mean. Right. That's very interesting. Right. I actually haven't heard that before from a trainer. So that's a very, very interesting uh, thing to hear. That's a, I like that a lot. Yeah, I'll sometimes be looking on the internet. It's like 10 o'clock and I'm like, oh, shoot, is it too late to send someone the link on this that I just saw that applied <laughs> yeah. to what happened last week, either at mm-hmm. a show or in training or something. And I'll forward it to like three or four people that I think it applies too, that we've been maybe talking about recently. And so I don't like randomly six o'clock in the morning, I wake up before my alarm and I'm looking on Instagram and there's some video of someone, uh, you know, working on straightness in their canter or something. Uh, mm-hmm. let's, let's look at this is what I was talking about. I think that that's important that they do that on their own too. That's really cool. Um, and again, with the training, either when you're riding or when you're teaching students um, and in instructing them is there a type of work or a type of exercise that you think is super important and can you describe it one particular exercise yeah like um do you have like maybe like a favorite I probably would say I add lib most of my lessons just depending on the group that I might have I have no problem teaching a pony kid at the same time I teach like someone doing the high junior jumpers because Mm -hmm. we can make it just as challenging for that person jumping 140 as we can with the pony rider by turning the exercise a little bit differently and I think yeah um, I'm very fortunate to um, have worked for Katie Prudon when I was uh, just just out of college and I watched her you know, teach several different levels at the same time and how she could kind of include anyone in a lesson. And it wasn't boring for anyone. Uh, I don't know if I do it as well as she does, but I, I feel like I don't have a problem kind of clumping four different levels together and making it challenging for all four people. I, I don't think there's one exercise. Yeah. No, I get you it. Can I make get it. Pole, you can make poles hard. I think the one thing that most of the rider my riders say is the smaller the jumps are the more challenging the exercise is going to be for the day i mean the flat yeah. work they're all going oh god it's gonna be so hard it's gonna be like it's gonna be so hard uh little boxes that are three or four feet wide uh, the, the the smaller the jumps the more challenging normally the i'm expect the more precise i'm expecting them to be yeah, I I mean, I agree with that myself, even I'm, you know, lessons if we're doing cavalettis or ground poles. Um, I think that the smaller the jumps, the more <laughs> challenging the lesson can get. Yeah. And, and I also say, like, you've got to have respect on the, the pole work. And 
you can't miss to a pull or allow yourself. I mean, of course you can miss. We all miss mm -hmm. to a pull. I mean, I, you know, chocolate chip to a pole. Um, the other day, actually, I wanted to jump one of my horses in one of the schooling rings in a little hunter ring. It's a horse I've jumped Grand Prix with. And I was like, oh, look, I'm like riding all light like a hunter and I can't her up with no connection, just sitting on his neck. And I absolutely missed and flew up his neck. And I think the spur hit him behind the saddle and I almost fell off and somehow I didn't. <laughs> but I mean, it happens. I was, I think, yeah. was a two foot six jump. And I was like looking around like, who saw him? But it happens to all of us. Um, but of course, we're not trying to make a, a, a mistake. But I always say, um, you know, treat that pole with the same respect you would as if it was a a vertical um, yeah. or an offset or something, you know, really work on trying to uh, have the right connection and the right cancer so that you can adjust to the pull. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I want to get into your background a little bit more here, going way back to the beginning. How did you get interested in riding to begin with? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I think when I was little, my mom said I would go to like little pony rides. There was a place called Pet a Pet Farm and they had turtles you could ride and they had a little pony and I, I would get on the pony. And then every time my mom would go to take me off, I would scream because I didn't want to get off the pony. Uh, so maybe that was <laughs> the initial, but we went, to a dude <laughs> ranch. We, we went to a dude ranch in Colorado when I was seven. My family wasn't they were not horse people at all uh, and you could uh ride once a day and then the second activity was like um whitewater rafting or something like that and from the first day I got on my horse McTavish I just wanted to ride him twice a day and I said no I don't want to do that other activity I don't want to go whitewater rafting and then my mom's like, well, you're missing ass. No, no, no. I want to ride the poor, poor horse twice a day. <laughs> so I rode him in the morning trail ride and I rode him in the afternoon trail ride. And then I cried on the airplane home from Colorado because <laughs> I want to be a cowgirl. And uh, my parents, there's no Western in our area, uh, but you could, you can, you can jump. I said, I don't want to jump. I want to be a cowgirl. But um, eventually I started riding and I rode at, uh, a local riding barn uh, called Tamarack. And ironically, this winter, one of the girls working for me, she's the great granddaughter of the people I originally uh, took lessons with. And she's now oh, helping wow. us in Florida. So it's like kind of come full circle. The one girl yeah. been with me for seven years, I met her at Washington. The, they had barn night and um, I was sitting there you know, for the interview session. And then I said, Oh, I recognize the, the logo. And then they asked to take pictures, uh, with me. And then six months later, the one girl said, Oh, can I come for a lesson? And that's been seven, almost eight years now. And she's, uh, in college still. So she came to me when she was 15 and she's mm -hmm. been with me now for, for seven years. And then she said, oh, there's the other girl, you know, she wants to just see what it's like to be outside of a lesson program because they own like 40, 50 horses. And I said, yeah, sure. Come to Florida with us. So she's seen like a different aspect of the business and her grandfather yeah. helped us ship some of the horses down. And so that's maybe the, that was my early start. And uh, my parents said I could never have a horse, but I can know for an answer. I always wanted to have a horse. So. <laughs> Uh, I saw a free lease when I was 10 on the, there was a little like index card at the saddlery mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then that free lease turned into then eventually we, we did, did lease that pony and then I somehow convinced my parents to buy a horse, oh pony, pony, and then my mom being an animal lover ended up buying a pony for my sister that didn't really know how to ride that was another one we had tried but wasn't for me and then we ended up with probably four horses at one point then oh, wow. from um, zero to four I, really quick <laughs> yeah, yeah really quick really quick and then when I was in high school <clears throat> I went to a George Morris clinic with my pony club instructor and I was very very fortunate this doesn't happen often she said, I can't do more for you, for your riding. You need to go to someone more advanced. And I mean, when do you hear that? And how fortunate I was for her 
to say that to my parents and she said I just don't have the yeah the time and you need to be with someone more advanced and she drove me to the George Morris clinic and um and I was hoping afterwards he'd say you could ride with me and he and he said well Katie Prudent is right down the road why don't you give her a call and so I ended up riding with her with my little thoroughbred and then I was very fortunate she gave me one of her horses that was owned by a, a good owner of hers Adam Sanford and it was the full of one of her good working hunters called um, centerfold was that was her horse and then I had the full of that when it was five turning six and I kept it in our backyard and uh, then took it to Devon in the fall uh, sorry in the in the spring and then it got sold after Devon doing the equitation and then they gave me another horse and then I went to college and you could almost say I hardly rode in college I did IHSA and I love doing the IHSA that was like a nice kind of sorority uh type thing for me to do yeah and then after college I ended up going to work for Katie and Henri in France and I stayed in Europe for 13 years and um and really enjoyed that time and now I have two passports and I really just came back to the U.S. more for family reasons than anything else but I have the ability to go back and forth whenever I want that's the very short. That's really cool. <laughs> That's a very quick, quick, quick uh, overview. <laughs> Could you touch some more on your experience in Europe? Because I understand while you were over there, um, you got your trainer certification um, at the uh, German riding school and um, you did do quite a lot of riding over there. So could you touch on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my dad always said, like, the more degrees you can get, the better. So, of course, I went to college and finished college and got a a degree in business. I have my CDL truck driver's license. I can drive a big Mm 18-wheeler. But, you know, my parents always said, my my grandmother had her master's. You know, it was like, just if you can get it, it, it's there's never, there's nothing wrong in learning more. Whatever it is, just, just try to be as knowledgeable as you can and especially if that's something I love is the horses and I lived very close to one of the um to Warendorf when I was in Germany and Handorf and Handorf is where they have uh one of the uh training certifications so it was I mean relatively simple because I had already been teaching and um and riding but um you know, it, it it always helps, but even just small things like body language, learning how to project your voice, you know, just things like that. And then having someone critique you on that um, it is good um, feedback because you might be saying the right thing. And Katie is such a fantastic trainer. I mean, I really learned a lot from from my time there watching her uh, her teach several different levels of riders. but. I mean, it always helps to have the certification as well, I guess. Um, when I first went over working for Katie, I was 20 and I was their flat rider. Uh, I thought I was going to be going over there as a groom. I didn't care. I just wanted to get to Europe. And I figured as long as I'm in the barn uh, with international horses, I'd be able to see a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went for like the interview. I say kind of in quotes, <laughs> I rode one horse and I rode it for like five minutes and she said, come ride in. And I was like, oh God, she's going to tell me to get off the horse. I'm horrible. <laughs> Even though she knew, she knew me for years already at that point. I said, do you think you could handle riding like five or six Grand Prix horses every day? And I was like, yeah, I think I could oh, do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I could do that. So I rode about 10 of their horses every day. Um, my job was just making sure the horses were ready to go. Uh, the next string of horses so they they could only take two or three horses to the FEI shows and whatever stayed back had to be ready to go to the next show so they may be gone for like two weeks on tour and then those horses would come back and then they'd have the fresh set ready and um, I mean that was amazing because I hadn't ridden at that level but I could see the management and I also Mm -hmm. say to everyone that 
the management is more than 90% of it. The riding is like nothing, but you've got to have a sound horse. You've got to be able to produce the horse, keep the horse happy. And there's so many Grand Prix horses born, but so many people don't know how to manage that. And then the horses fall by the wayside because they get injured or fall into hands that can't get them to that level or people Mm -hmm. that don't believe in them or something like that. Right. Um, So I learned a lot about that. And then I felt like I wasn't actually getting in the show ring the way I wanted to. And I thought, well, Katie's like the best person. If it's not working with Katie, like, I don't even know which direction I'll go. I never gave up on the horses, but I thought I need to see what my degree is good for. So I ended up moving to Holland. I wanted to stay in Europe, um, Mm -hmm. but I ended up having an office job in financial consulting. And I was riding two, three, four horses after work every day. And I was really fortunate that the barn I was at, I mean, the man was amazing. He had gone to the Olympics for dressage, but he had also qualified for jumping as well. And I rode some of his horses and then my own um, and started showing more. And I also worked for a big dealing barn there um, in Holland and started making connections that you don't appreciate at the time, but. Uh, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later, you go, oh my gosh, it's amazing to see like where this person has gone with their career. And yeah, it, it's just fun to see. I mean, we all were kind of nobodies back then. And now everyone's kind of um, become professionals in the sport. So that's really fun. And then um, I was in Belgium for a short period of time and then, then went to Germany after that. And from Germany, I came back to America. And just bought and sold horses and just tried to kind of upgrade the quality of horses every time I was uh, buying and selling. And when did you decide to start your own business when you came back to the States? Um, I had, so I, well, I had already started my business while I was in Europe. I had my job in financial consulting. I had a mare that I was riding and she was injured and um, I I got her pregnant and she was in a field pregnant and she fell in a canal and there was pollution in the water and it burned her skin like she was in a fire. And for me, this was like life changing because I drove every day from Holland, uh, like I was working in Amsterdam to Ghent, which is one of the biggest animal clinics in uh, Belgium. So I was driving mm-hmm, to Belgium mm-hmm. like every other day and the horse wouldn't eat unless I was there giving her carrots. That was, she would only eat when I went Aww. there and I just couldn't make it there every day because I was still working. And, um, at the same time, there was some stuff with my family and I said, you know, I think I just need to go back to the U S for a couple months, maybe take a sabbatical from work, uh, from my office job. And, Laura Kraut had been helping me with a couple of courses, just taking some lessons when, I, when she had time and when I had time. And her sister, Mary Elizabeth, was like, oh, you can come help us for the winter. So I went back to the U.S. Um, this was like 2006, 2007 winter. And I was working for them. That was when she had Miss Independence. And Cedric was just eight turning nine. Um, and I was there for the for the winter, 2006, 2007. And while I was there, I was like, ah, I just can't go back to working in an office. Like, I just, it wasn't for me. And I knew that the whole time. Um, and so I, uh, I went and I started, um, I went and I started my uh, LLC, basically, when I got back to Virginia and then flew back to Europe. Mm-hmm. And the first horse I really bought on the business was so inexpensive. I just took the money out of an ATM machine. It was a four-year-old and she was kind of skinny and gangly. And um, I just, you know, trained her up. And then um, the next year, the five-year-old, she was 11th in the five-year-old finals. And then I sold her and then um, bought another one and sold it and then just started upgrading yeah things just got got rolling from there yeah yeah exactly and I mean I mean they say sometimes you know you have to be a hard worker but there's a bit of luck in the game too so 
I had one horse that was in my barn from from owners and that horse um the full brother had jumped Aachen and had won a Grand Prix Global Champions Tour and I had the full brother stallion and so I went up to Paul Shockmore at a show and I said I have the full brother of this horse and he said okay I want to see it and so I brought it to to um, Moulin to his farm and they bought it mm-hmm. that week so that was just a bit of luck on my part and um I kind of capitalized on the fact that I'd lived in a couple of different countries and just the way Americans are skeptical about going to Europe to buy horses. The Germans at that time were skeptical to go to France to buy horses and the French were skeptical to go to Holland and the Dutch were skeptical of the Germans. And I I can't say that's not untrue, but I bore the risk of taking a horse from France to Germany, showing it in Germany. And when people saw it every week on the show, then I sold that to the Germans or I took a horse from Holland from the connections I had when I was there, brought it to Germany and then again sold it to the Germans because they felt more comfortable seeing it week in and week out on the show. So right. I think that 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 was kind of what I I was the one that took that risk on of bringing the horse in. So I actually sold a lot of horses within Europe when I was there too, more than I was expecting. Yeah, right. Um, and also, touching. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go on. <laughs> okay. Um, just you were speaking about you know competing over there, so I just wanted to move forward into competing and winning and losing. Just some more competition-related questions. So in this sport, you know, it's a very difficult sport. Horses are unpredictable, um, and things don't always go as planned. So, you know, in your career, when things don't go, you know, the way that you might like or you don't win as often as you might like, um, how do you deal with something like that? Well, it's not like soccer where it's 50-50, right? So you might be in a class with um, 50 horses, so you have a 2% chance of winning. Uh, You know, it's part of the sport knowing that. I never... Uh, grew up in a sport where it was like a 50-50 win-lose. Um, as far as like losing out on horses, I can say there's been times where I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep trying with a horse, keep trying, keep trying. And then I'm like, okay, I need to, to sell it. And I'm okay with the loss. Like I, to win mm-hmm. big, it means you're also losing big sometimes as well. So I might've, you know, for example, sold that one horse to Shockamol, but I can tell you I've, turned around and said, okay, I'm going to sell this horse for $5,000. I want to go on tomorrow. And if you happen to be there on the right moment, you could get a hell of a deal from me. If you just, if you're a quick buyer, there's a couple people I know that are quick buyers. And I'm like, I just can't, the horse isn't maybe going to shows with me because I don't have enough space in the trailer, enough time to ride the horse. I'm like, I'm just not doing justice for the horse, but maybe for a kid, um, that wants to jump a 110, I mean, you're not going to find a better horse. You just have to happen to mm-hmm. be there on that day. Then, um, so that's like maybe my loss, like business-wise, I'm okay to lose sometimes Yeah, because it costs so much to feed the horses if it's not the right horse to put in the trailer to go to a show. Just mm-hmm. got to go. And can you talk about some of your most important or favorable wins in your career? Um. I mean, for me, probably the one that might stick out is Washington is like my home show. When I was eight, I went there with my mom and my aunt and I saw Margie jump the wall. And um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I just I never had the horsepower to be able to uh, to be able to show there when I was a junior. And then when I was in college, like I said, I rode on IHSA, which was, you know, just a limited riding and then I went to Europe and I had been in Europe for 13 years. And when I moved back to the US, I came back with three horses. And the one horse was an eight-year-old I had found as a six-year-old that had you know, barely been jumping like a meter 10 kind of inconsistently. Um, I had good results with him as a seven-year-old. I had been able to do um, some of the rider tour shows, like up to four-star level, but youngster tour. So I did the seven, eight-year-old classes at those bigger shows with him. And 
he I thought was quite commercial, good looking horse. Um, and I got into Washington and I had been watching that show for 25 years and never been able to ride in it. Never even had the horsepower to even think about getting there. And um, then my first time at Washington, I did the FEI and I thought, okay, I'll do the two speed classes. He's eight years old. And then I went to the office and I said, you know, what's your scratch policy? If I enter the Grand Prix, it might be a bit lofty <laughs> idea to do the Grand Prix with an eight-year-old, but, um, uh, you know, like if I enter and I walk the course and it just, it's just going to be overwhelming, you know, <laughs> will I get my money back or am I going to have to pay? And they said, no, as right. long as you scratch before the, the class starts. And so I entered and, uh, I was like, okay, we're going to play go. We're just, we're going to go through the motions. Like I'm going to do the class and we'll, you know, I'll walk the course and everything. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. He jumped fantastic in the two, like, qualifiers, basically. And uh, I'm going to go for it. And he jumped around and got a ribbon in the class. And for me, that was probably, the, like, the moment that I think that, okay, I didn't win the class. But that was my home show that I always thought was amazing it was downtown um yeah like friends of mine that I hadn't seen in years I had only I hadn't even officially really moved back I still had horses in in Europe I still had an apartment in Europe but it was like the first year that I you know a couple I had been back for a couple months at that point um mm -hmm. kind of inconsistently back and forth and to go in and then I had worked for Laura Crowd and I was ahead of her in the results Margie was someone you know, I also looked up to. I was ahead of her yeah. in, the, in the class results. I was like, oh my gosh. And um, on a horse that I owned 100% myself, I had found myself at a horse show. When I asked if the horse was for sale, the people were surprised I was even interested in the horse. And then, like, you know, the phone started ringing off the hook, like, you know, you want to sell the horse. And like, this horse owes me nothing. You know, it's like, it, it, that's my business card. Like, he's just a funny horse and for, mm -hmm. for me that was the moment I I was like okay like he helped people notice me yeah I mean that I can imagine how big of a moment that is and in front of a home crowd and in a class with some people some riders that are looked up to not only by you but by so many people I mean that must have been such a huge moment and it must have just made you feel like you know I did it I got here um, and I, you know, like you said, you did it on your own horse that you found and you produced. So what a moment. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there's been several more moments like that. And I hope that my career still is building. I feel like it's like, I'm, I still feel like the teeniest little fish in the pond, but that's good. I feel like there's still a lot of room for me to learn mm -hmm. more and grow more. Do you ever take lessons yourself or do you have any guidance from other trainers in, you know, the professional circuit, say that, um, you know, maybe when you're at a show, they'll give you some tips and tricks or just help you, you know, in any sore spots you might have? Yeah, absolutely. I don't have like one person consistently that I go to like weekly or that helps me warm up yeah. or something, but I ask a lot of people for help and sometimes um well I I will even say like oh I'll go for a lesson and bring a horse that I might think that the people might be interested in seeing also and sometimes I've had um from horses that I really believe in but I'm like maybe it's not the match for me and I'll ask another rider if they'll maybe get on and give me some ideas um I really think that sometimes it's about the match um there's a lot of good horses but sometimes the match isn't there and it's not that I've given up on those horses at all by any means I still believe in their quality but maybe they're not the right ones for me um talk to people about different bit ideas and um dressage lessons and yeah yeah, yeah. I, and I watch a lot in the warm-up too I'm watching what people are doing and um there's no yeah, stopping I, learning yeah definitely I think it's it's really encouraging to hear um for our listeners that someone you know a professional of your caliber um you know, still takes those lessons and, and is looking for those tips from her, her not peers. And then also, you know, other riders. And because, 
like you said, learning never stops. So to hear that, like I said, someone of your professional standing is still looking to further her education is something that I think our listeners were really, really resonate with. A hundred percent. And all the horses are different. And um, well, even listening to everyone in the barn, too, the grooms have ideas. I and mean, one of the girls, we had a, a horse that was getting hives and we had medicated the horse like three times for hives. And it would go away for a little bit and come back. And then she was like, you know, when we had the horse out in the field, just like hanging out, the hives went away. She said, do you think you could be allergic to the grain? I was like, well, let's try to stop it and mm. give them hay for a little bit. They went away. They're gone. Yeah. And she's she's 16 years old but let's try it you know that doesn't mean like I'm like I'm willing to listen to everyone um yeah you know that I was like that's a good idea you know I hadn't really put that together and we didn't even have to pay for any uh, allergy testing yeah yeah yeah, I think you and and I'm like when you're like oh someone of your caliber I'm like oh my god I'm a nobody I'm like literally like I I just feel like I, I feel there's so much more to grow in the sport. Oh, okay, maybe I've jumped some Grand Prix, but like, I'm like, I'm. There's there's so much more to learn. I feel like I need to learn so much more in the sport. Well, to to top on that, um, I always like to ask this question, and I get a, a mix of answers. Um, and because sometimes, like you just said, you know, I'm saying you're this incredible rider of this incredible caliber, and. You know, you personally might not feel like that sometimes, but so many people, you know, look at you and you're just this huge successful rider, which you are. So um, why do you think that you've been so successful in your career? I don't think I've been so successful in my career. I need to be more successful. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Why? I don't Am I successful? I don't know. I feel like I could be more successful. I mean, I'm very fortunate to be able to pay my bills doing something that I love so I guess it's success if I'm able to pay my bills doing something I love um I mean I have so many more like goals and dreams and ideas to like grow like things that would even scare me maybe to say out loud but um I I mean I still feel like I'm starting my career maybe that sounds weird I don't know no not at all not at all I've heard it before I mean I totally get it I, I um, mean, what do you I think? have more, oh, sorry. I have bigger, I have bigger aspirations than where I am right now, I guess. Say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we started off this, you know, podcast interview talking about how you sit down with your students and you ask them what their aspirations are. So in a way you're doing that with yourself, you know? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And what would you say is the hardest part of the sport for you? It could be anything from, you know, emotionally, financially, mentally, um, you know, people struggle with this sport in different ways. And I think that everybody does in some way or the other. Um, so what would you say is the hardest part of the sport? People want to buy the winners. They don't want to buy the losers. Yeah. So um, when your horses are going good and you're having the most success, that's when the offers come in. Um, and that's the moment you really don't want to sell them. But then I have to remind myself I would have a job in an office if I didn't sell those horses. Um, so that's, that's hard because it's super heartbreaking. And you see that you read that, you know, someone sold their top horse just after they won the Grand Prix. And like, it's heartbreaking because, you know, financially, like it has to, it has to happen to keep the sport going. Um, that's that's hard um I I don't know I mean I accept the challenges in the sport yeah I know I know financially it's hard um I'm happy that I've gotten to where I am even though like I've had to work for it all like it didn't come from a family that bought my horses I did it uh, myself um but I accept that I know that I'm not showing every horse every week because I have to budget which horses are showing when um I mean obviously injuries but I mean that's part of it too is just uh, you know planning that um what are the hardest parts but I don't know no that's great sometimes you need the bad days to appreciate the good days I guess yeah absolutely absolutely Um, and going back to competing a little bit more, um, I wanted to ask if 
when you are showing yourself, do you ever get nervous? And if you do, how do you handle your nerves? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, but I, I, I noticed that I pick apart details like before a big class. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this, uh, the runner is out of place or the horse has like a speck of dust, like the hair is going the wrong direction. And (laughs) right. The the nail could be tighter on the shoe. I'm like really going from head to toe. Everyone goes crazy because I've noticed these small details. I'm like, how can you guys not be so detail orientated? That really drives me crazy when I see something. And I don't tend to do that until it's a bigger uh, class. Right. I noticed that when I'm getting nervous that I really want like every I dotted and T crossed perfectly. Um, Not unlike many other people, though. Um, Mm -hmm. I wish there was more time in the day so that I could appreciate every horse. I think the one hard thing is that I know horses ride to the occasion when they think they're like the special horse, the first horse. And it's very hard to treat all of the horses like the first horse um or like there's always one horse that's obnoxious for more attention and that that's uh the challenge that's a challenge to try to think that try to let every horse think that they're the special horse i think they will jump that much or perform that much better for you if they believe that like they're your superstar um Mm -hmm. but i get nervous um i have use a sports psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. Now I like focus on breathing. Um, but, I, but yeah, I've called sports psychologist before. I also listen to some of the like books about sports psychology when I'm driving in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that's normal. I think it's a good thing. Oh, definitely. I've heard from so many trainers and riders um, that they have used sports psychologists before. I mean, I have myself. I think it's an excellent way to learn how to get your nerves and your anxiety under control or to, just to understand them better and um, how to manage them. You know, I think I it's a great thing. Nerve, I get very nervous when my riders are in the ring because then you don't have control uh, yeah. over what's happening. So mm-hmm. that I get like almost more nervous when, um, when the riders are in the ring, I hope we prepared correctly so that they're ready to do everything. I said, okay, everything we did in the warm up ring and at home and in lessons, don't forget about uh, forget about that. Forget about it. just ride off your feeling in the ring. Hopefully, you have enough muscle memory at this point that just ride off a feeling in the ring. That's what I say. I'm like, don't. I, I never say at the last. I'm not giving a, a lesson before <laughs> they go in the ring. The yeah, lesson happens yeah. at home, or you know, once they're in the ring, they just need to, to focus on the course. Yeah. And just a couple last questions before we wrap up here. Um, Firstly, is there any advice that you would give your younger self? I mean, I, I, it's not advice. I wish I could have worked for more people um, and taken People don't want an older person working. But they want a younger person. And people be more open about telling ideas to a younger person than an older person. Um, I wish I had worked for more riders I, I i don't know I, uh, I i would love to like go ride at shockable for a little bit or something but i have right. my business where it is now and i can't walk away from that i mean i had someone offer for me to be their private trainer in wellington and i said i can't do that because i have too many horses mm-hmm on my own, I can't just like liquidate what I have right now. I have a lot of horses. I couldn't just fire sale them nor it wouldn't make sense. So right now I'm kind of in that direction of having a lot of horses. So my goal is to have more horses and to have people, more riders riding for me because I do enjoy watching riders uh, ride my horses. Um, Ones that are hardworking and really want it. And I understand people make mistakes Mm -hmm. and stuff, but if they really you know, love the horses and appreciate it and stuff. But I, yeah, I wish I'd had the time to be able to work for even more people. I can't work for two people at once, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you really, you, like you were telling me, you know, you kind of hit the ground running, you know, when you got to Europe and you found a horse and, um, you know, paid what you had to for him and then just kind of got started. So I understand what you mean. Like if you could go back that would be something that you might make different 
Yeah, I, I would have maybe worked for more dealing barns or maybe a couple more international riders or something. I think it was a good idea to do the like grooming slash like home riding and the flat work and stuff. I mean, I got to see a lot doing that. Um, yeah. I would love to spend more time with like, I think like coming together as a team. Um, I think that there are enough um, people looking for horses and looking for training. I don't think um, I'm, I'm never worried about, client stealing or so I think that's ridiculous I'm like if someone wants to go they can go somewhere else and there's there's plenty of business to go around for everyone I guess I'm never worried about that yeah um and just a know. couple last things um what is next for you what's on your calendar what's next well we are in Ocala at WEC uh for mm-hmm. the winter and I have several new horses here. So just, um, I have a good coming eight-year-old, good coming nine-year-old that could start to jump bigger classes, um, which is kind of exciting. And kind of like far in the future, I started breeding a little bit. So we had oh, very uh, cool. one full, yeah, we had one full last year. We're expecting two fulls coming this spring. Um, and then we have some embryos frozen. And I want to try to have at least four uh, uh, foals for next year. So we have several embryos frozen, like ready to implant. So doing more of breeding with the mares that I have are have very good mother lines. And so that's um, maybe like in the short and long term because the breeding, I mean, that is about the future um, and finding people that want to kind of yeah. start start uh riding those youngsters um so that's very cool that's fun i'm I'm super excited about that like i'm super excited about uh, in that direction um especially because i have mares with um, good lines so that that's like a short and long term thing yeah very awesome well good luck with that and good luck uh while you're down at WEC this season I'm sure that'll be lots of fun and you'll have a ton of success. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to speak to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Cam Agotic and a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina. Learn more at PurinaMills.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Also, tune into our mini-sode series, The Fod Pod, where you'll hear audio lessons from our favorite Practical Horseman On Demand clips. At Practical Horseman On Demand, you can enjoy hundreds of how-to videos and get insider access to exclusive interviews and lectures, slow-motion demonstrations, and step-by-step tutorials taught by top-level pros in the hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing disciplines. When you tune into The Fod Pod, Listen closely for a promo code for 15% off your Practical Horseman on-demand subscription. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. I'm Julia Murphy, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.